Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. How are you doing? I hope you're doing all right. I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks for not asking. Well, you probably if you were there, if you were in front of me, you probably would ask me. If you were in front of me right now, you'd probably ask me, oh, how are you, Luke? And I would say, what are you doing in my apartment? It's a bit weird. How did you get in here? I'm joking, of course. Anyway, welcome to a new episode, and I hope you're doing well. I'm recording this in uh, in the bedroom of the apartment, and next door to this bedroom, there is like, there's a hotel, like the our next door neighbours on that side are actually a hotel. And for the past two weeks, they've been doing drilling. They've just been doing a lot of drilling. It's just drilling, 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 even doing drilling on Sunday morning. It's like, what are you guys drilling for? What do you expect to find? Oil in the walls? I don't know what they're doing in there. So much drilling. I mean, what could they... I know you're probably thinking they're probably putting TVs on the wall. But I mean, do you need to drill for two weeks to put a TV on the wall? And it's like literally right next to it's like like this all the time. It's like the whole flat is vibrating. It's not very good when you're trying to look after a one month old baby. Um, But she doesn't sleep in the bedroom. We just um, the bedroom is full of clothing at the moment. This is all information you don't need to know. But anyway, I'm I'm saying that because I feel like any second now the drilling is going to start again. No? Okay, good. So they're not, maybe they're having lunch. I don't know. Anyway, welcome to the podcast. Um, And I should just remind you that Luke's English Podcast is sponsored by italki. Italki helped to support the show. And you should check out italki. If you're looking for one-to-one lessons, if you'd like to find someone um, like a qualified teacher, for example, to give you lessons, or perhaps like an English speaker from the UK or from other English-speaking countries uh, for for regular conversations, or if you want to find a language partner, um, that's definitely possible with italki. It's a brilliant resource, a great way of solving the problem of how do I find someone to speak to or how do I find a one-to-one teacher? They've got loads of them on italki. They've got like... They've all got profiles and videos. You can check them out and find the one that you like. You can have trial lessons with with them and check them out. And when you choose the one that appeals to you, the one that's you know fits your the the sort of profile you're looking for, you can uh, buy some talking time. Italki will send you a voucher for a free lesson, and then next thing you know, you've got like one to one lessons built into your lifestyle on a regular basis. You can have English conversations from the comfort of your own home as long as you don't have neighbours doing lots of drilling. Um, and uh, I, I expect you don't. I mean, it happens sometimes, but most of the time uh, your neighbours are probably not drilling, unlike in my place. Um, so teacherluke.co.uk slash talk. That's how you um, find italki. And if you use that link, that's how you get the voucher when you buy some talking time. Also, you can click on an italki logo on my website. Okay, then. Thanks for listening to this little bit of promo at the beginning there. No drilling still. 
Good. Let's hope that carries on. And let's start the episode properly with the jingle. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, folks. Welcome to Luke's English Podcast. How are you doing? Hope you're doing all right. Now then, what's it all about, eh? What's it all about? Life, I mean. What's it all about at the end of the day? Or at the beginning of the day? Or at any time of the day, in fact? What's life all about? Uh, This is a question that people have been attempting to answer for bloody ages. Nobody seems to be able to agree or disagree for certain what the purpose of our existence is or even what the true nature of reality is. But over the years, the things that people have said and written in response to these questions, or this question of what's life about, or what's it all about, uh, the things that people have said and written about that have influenced our lives in loads of ways without us even realising it. Considering the question of what's it all about is basically the foundation of philosophy, And in this episode, I'm going to talk about philosophy and define a few of the main types of philosophy that exist. I'll also attempt to apply those different types of philosophy to the understanding of language learning if I can. And if I can't, I'll just, I don't know, make a jam sandwich or something, or I'll just talk about something else, or I just won't do it at all if I can't. So lots of philosophy and um, some things about language learning as well. So with this episode, you can learn English relating to lots of things, including abstract ideas, ethics, science, debate, reason, logic, experience, and academic thought in general. And also, we can consider the process of language learning from a couple of different points of view. So then, um, why am I doing this particular episode uh, then, and why am I doing it now? Well, let me tell you the story. So, a while ago, right, I was on the internet, um, just going around the internet, probably distracted, um, like, you know, the way you sometimes are. I was probably trying to do something else. I ended up being distracted by Facebook. You know the way it goes. And I came across a questionnaire, uh, which was called, What School of Philosophy Do You Belong To? You know those questionnaires that you get, like quizzes, you know? Uh, and I, I thought to myself, well, that makes a change from the usual stupid quizzes, you know, the things like, which Star Wars character are you? Which I have taken a number of times. Apparently, I'm Princess Leia, which is quite surprising. I thought I was Luke Skywalker. Anyway, uh, which Star Wars character are you? Or what type of biscuit are you? Or, you know, which type of fluff are you? Are you the fluff in the corner of the room? The fluff in the tumble dryer? Uh, The fluff in your belly button? the fluff that collects in your jacket pocket, or the fluff which collects under the strings of a guitar that never gets played. Uh, What kind of fluff are you? That wasn't a real quiz. I just made that one up. But it's the sort of thing that you get, you know, those sort of slightly stupid quizzes that you find on Facebook or Twitter or or something. But this one, uh, which was called Which School of Philosophy Do You Belong To? This one was about philosophy, Right, And I thought, oh, I haven't done an episode about philosophy on the podcast. That might be an interesting one. Um, that might be an interesting yet fun way to explore a fairly intellectual topic, is what I thought. I thought it would be um, 
I thought it would be an interesting way for Paul, Amber and me to have an intelligent and highbrow discussion instead of just talking about poo or Russian jokes or having accordions for legs. Although they are, of course, perfectly valid topics of conversation. But I thought that might make a change because I haven't talked directly about philosophy on the podcast before. And um, I I find philosophy interesting. I'm, I'm not like an expert on philosophy or anything like that. I did study some philosophy at university and at uh, college. And um, I take, I dabble, let's say, I dabble in philosophy. Um, I've got a few books in the apartment somewhere that kind of are related to philosophy, including fun philosophy books like the philosophy of Star Wars or the philosophy of the Terminator or the philosophy of uh, the Big Lebowski. There is a series of books um, which use uh, film franchises as a way of exploring philosophical ideas. That's the kind of philosophy I like, you know, just the sort of fun armchair philosophy. So I'm no expert, but I dabble in philosophy. Um, and um, yeah, and I've never talked about philosophy on the podcast before, so I thought it could be an interesting subject uh, for me to discuss or for the pod pals to discuss. That's Amber and Paul. And um, in fact, we got together a couple of months ago, uh, the three of us, and we recorded ourselves going through that quiz in order to find out what school of philosophy each of us belongs to based on the ways that we live our lives and the ways that we think about the world. So we actually recorded the conversation. However, the conversation that we recorded ended up being quite heavy. You know, we got a bit bogged down in just trying to understand, interpret and discuss what each question actually meant. So not only did we have to try and understand uh, the different types of philosophy, we also had to just try to make sense of the fairly complex questions in the quiz. So um, it made me think, and after listening back to it, you know, during the during the conversation, and after I after we'd done it, and I listened back to the recording, uh, which I still have here on my computer, it made me think, oh, this might be this might be a bit difficult to listen to. This might not be enjoyable. Um, or understandable, a complicated conversation and a complicated topic. I, It could be a bit of a challenge for the Lepsters. That's what I was thinking. Maybe I'm underestimating you, or maybe I was underestimating you when I thought that. Now, I will play you the conversation, and you can hear our discussion. Uh, and you can also do the quiz online while you listen to the conversation, if you like. But that's going to be in the next episode of this podcast because I thought it would be a good idea for me to talk to you about philosophy first in this episode and to define some of the terms before you hear hear our conversation and that should make it a bit easier for you to follow what Paul, Amber and I are going on about uh, while making it possible for you to perhaps learn some things about philosophy and also the language that we use when talking about philosophy and while tackling the big questions like what's it all about and what shall we have for dinner? Well, maybe not that one, although that is rather a big question as well. You know, what shall we have to, for dinner? Maybe that's the most important. That's that's the more important question. What shall we have for dinner? Um, you know, never mind what it's all about. I'm hungry. Um, maybe I should do an episode about what shall we have for dinner. That's that's one for the future, perhaps. But um, 
So do you get it? Do you understand what's going on? Um, in the next episode, you'll hear Paul, Amber and me going on about uh, philosophy and trying to understand this quiz. It's, it was a slightly frustrating conversation because the, the questions in the quiz were a bit complicated and slightly frustrating. So we ended up just discussing the quiz questions uh, rather than getting properly stuck into the, the philosophical ideas. But, you know, I think it's worth listening to. And this episode now should help you to um, be able to understand the, the next one. Now, I know that you you might not be a philosopher, or all of you might not be philosophers. I have all sorts of people listening to this from many different backgrounds. The, the main thing that unites you, I suppose, well, the thing that unites you is that you're a learner of English or that you have an interest in, in English as a language, um, probably British English. There are other things that unite you too, like the fact that you have excellent taste and a wonderful sense of humour, and that you're very attractive as a person on the outside and the inside, obviously. But um, I, I wonder if you're the sort of person who takes an interest in philosophy. Uh, some of you might be academic types, and others not. Some of you are the types of people who like complex and abstract discussions, and others might be the types of people who would rather listen to us talking about more tangible things, like Amber's son doing a poo under a table or something like that. Uh, in any case, I like to present a fairly wide range of topics on this podcast, and I think that's important for your English. And after all, that's what this is all about. So let's talk about eight different schools of philosophical thought in this episode, and then you could listen to Amber, Paul and me taking that quiz, and hopefully it will make a bit more sense to you. And by the way, if you would rather hear that story of Amber's son, doing a poo under a table, in a restaurant, by the way, which is a real story. Um, you can just listen to episode number 380 again, and you can find that one in the archive. Uh, episode 380 was called Catching Up with Amber and Paul, and in that one, Amber, Paul and me caught up with each other and sort of told a few little anecdotes, including this one about the the table experience. But um, Anyway, for this episode, it's, it's sl something slightly more highbrow, uh, philosophy. So what is philosophy? What's that? Well, uh, philosophy is all about how we understand the world and how we make sense of everything around us. Okay, so it's kind of the, the, under, the study of everything or the study of existence itself. But it's not just why are we here or indeed it's not just what's it all about. Uh, philosophy actually helps us to create the assumptions behind how we understand pretty much everything. That's a bit vague. I'll get more specific in a moment. Really, philosophy is about attempting to answer questions that relate to every aspect of our lives. And philosophy is, I suppose, the starting point from which we are able to then explore more specific things like, you know, the scientific method or um, about economic uh, policies or politics or education, psychology, um, you know, um, all those things that really they start with philosophy. So uh, really philosophy is about attempting to answer questions that relate to every aspect of our lives. This is um, just a, a definition from Wikipedia uh, Wikipedia says that philosophy is the study of general and fundamental problems concerning matters such as existence, knowledge, values, reason, the mind, and language. The term was probably coined by Pythagoras, sort of a around 500 years before the birth of Christ. Philosophical methods, 
include questioning, critical discussion, rational argument, and systematic presentation. Uh, Sounds a bit like the stuff we do at university, doesn't it? Well, in fact, university, the whole concept of university was set up by philosophers, really. Classic philosophical discussions include, is it possible to know anything and prove it? Oh, that's a classic, isn't it, that one? What is most real? Um, And philosophers also pose more practical and concrete questions, such as, is there a best way to live? Is it better to be just or unjust, if one can get away with it? And do humans have free will? And what shall we have for dinner? Now, actually, that question isn't there. Um, So, philosophy is the study of how we understand everything. And the answers to these questions form assumptions about so many things, including education, for example. Um, Like, you know, what should children do at school? And why are schools important in the first place? Or how should we organise our university system? And what should you know students be doing? And you know what's the right method f- uh, for their studying? Uh, health. How do we understand our bodies? And how do we know what will make us strong or weak, healthy or sick? Or in fact, what is the right kind of lifestyle to have? Uh, politics. What's the best way to run the country? Science. What's the nature of reality? How do we measure that? And can science solve the problems that we face? What is the scientific method and how can it help us to discover the truth about the world? Um, Debate and communication, like, for example, what is the most effective way to argue your point in a discussion? Uh, And what are the most effective ways to present information to people? Religion, who or what is God and does he or she or it exist? How does this relate to the choices that we make in life and do we even have choices? Language. What is language? How does it work? What does it tell us about us as people? And how do we actually learn language? Should it be controlled? What constitutes good and bad language? And then finally, ethics here. So ethics, which is all about how do we decide what is right or wrong? uh, What's the right or wrong thing to do in any situation? Um, An example of an ethical question, and you know, Philosophy often, it's very concerned with ethics, um, you know, understanding what's what the right thing to do is. Because if you can work out what the right thing to do is, that kind of deals with lots of other questions too. But an example of an ethical question might be this. If your neighbours are having a loud party late at night, is it okay for you to call the police to stop the party? Now, we've, you know, we've all been in that situation, haven't we? Imagine... Your neighbours are having a loud party and it's keeping you awake. And you're lying there in bed and all you can hear is... Or that kind of thing, you know... And people talking... It's so annoying, especially when you really need to sleep and when they're playing music that you don't like and when someone has an irritating laugh. Where I live, where we live here... In this street in Paris, there's a an apartment, a flat opposite us, and in the summer they always have parties. And there's a guy who lives in the apartment opposite us who has the most annoying laugh in the universe. Okay, and they have all their windows open. Sometimes they sit out on the balcony with their music playing, and it's just and then just. <laughs> Ugh. 
So we all know that situation, right? Neighbours are having a loud party. You can hear the music. Uh, Someone's got an irritating laugh and it's keeping you awake. So what should you do? Now, here are some of the reasons for stopping their, their party. Um, I suppose, how would you stop the party? Well, you either go da- go round and knock on the door uh, and politely or impolitely ask them to stop um, or you call the police or something and the police will go round and knock on their do- door and politely or impolitely ask them to stop or force them. So anyway, here are some reasons for stopping it, right? So some of the reasons are it's annoying for you personally or it's annoying for everyone in the area. Um, it's somehow damaging behaviour for them, for example, because they need sleep and they shouldn't be drinking or doing whatever they're doing. So it's unhealthy for them. Okay. Uh, or it's breaking a rule which has been imposed by the government. Like, you know, you can't play loud music after a certain time. Or here are some reasons for not stopping the party. So if, you know, in your decision making process, here are some reasons for not stopping it. Maybe everyone has the right to have a party sometimes, or it would simply be rude to interrupt their celebration. Or um, the police, if you call them, might be unreasonably aggressive with them, and someone might end up being arrested or even physically harmed. Or simply, if they don't stop playing that music... um, well, if they don't stop playing that music now, I will go round there and murder everyone in the building, especially if they play that song again. Um, I don't know how that fits in, actually, but that's just a, a, an angry thought that is invading your mind. Anyway, th- these are the sorts of questions that philosophers actually might spend a lot of time thinking about, especially if their neighbours were having a noisy party next door. The philosopher might spend ages pondering the question of exactly what to do even if most people would probably just bang on the wall and tell the neighbours to shut up for God's sake, just shut up or I'll call the police. Assuming, of course, that God exists and that the police have got nothing better to do other than sit around smoking cigarettes, which may be the case. Anyway, uh, so philosophers uh, might consider those questions, even if there isn't a party happening. Philosophers might just sit around like, imagine if there was a party, uh, what would be the right course of action in, in, you know, in, in ethical terms? Um, you see? So, still on that example of the ethics of having a loud party in a highly populated area, one of the big responses from the philosophers might be that it's unfair for these people to have this party because it's simply unethical for a small group of people to be happy at the expense of the happiness of the majority of people living in the surrounding area right? Um, Which would be a very reasonable thing to say, I think, under the circumstances. I imagine that most people would just think, those those bloody bastards, right? You wouldn't, you know, have the full-on sort of philosophical process going on. You'd just be uh, swearing loudly. Um, And that's not an established political, uh, political or philosophical position. I think just shouting, you bastards, out of the window doesn't really fall into any of the the, the philosophical schools of thought. Ha, 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 ha. Okay. So the the ethical principle that I described there, not not the you bastards position, but the, the whole happiness for the majority of people is the deciding factor position. So that ethical position is basically what benefits the majority of people is the right thing to do. Um, and that is a philosophical position. English philosopher Jeremy Bentham might come to mind when considering this idea, if you know who Jeremy Bentham is, of course. If you don't know who he is and you've never heard his name before, I would be very surprised if he if he came to your mind. 
Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, you might not come up with the no- you might if you were lying there with a loud party and you thought what would Jeremy Bentham say? Um, I'd be surprised. You might just be thinking, how can I get my neighbours to turn down the music? Uh, and suddenly, <laughs> Jeremy Bentham. No, that that would be weird. Anyway. Jeremy Bentham was an English philosopher who thought about this kind of thing. Um, And he said that it's the greatest happiness of the greatest number of people that is the measure of right and wrong. Okay, and this is the foundation of utilitarianism. That's a system which influenced lots of people and, for example, contributed to the construction of the welfare state. That's the system in the UK that provides health care for everyone but which is probably paid for mainly by the people with incomes, the people earning money from their work. And the higher the income, the more money you pay towards the welfare state in the form of tax. So you see that this principle of utilitarianism uh, is the sort of thing that would lead to progressive taxation, uh, a welfare state um, as a way of dealing with society's problems. And as long as most people are made happy, this is the right way to run a society. People who work should pay tax, and a lot of that tax should go towards a healthcare system that's available for everyone, even those people who don't work, and even if it means that some people who earn more money are also paying more. This is a utilitarian system, okay? And this is an example of how a philosophical idea, in this case utilitarianism, has an impact on the political policy of a nation and how that can affect everything else. How would Jeremy Bentham deal with the party, though? I suppose he, he would have no problem um, in in thinking that the, the people having the loud party were in the wrong. OK, but then there's another question, isn't there, of, of like quality of of enjoyment and also the question of like, well, if maybe if everyone has the right to have a party at some time, that that's the right response, that maybe Jeremy Bentham would think, well, they they have the right to have that party, even if most people in the area are unhappy, but that's balanced by the rights that everyone in the area has to have their own party later on. So maybe Jeremy Bentham would think, well, fine, have your loud party, but next weekend I'm going to have a loud party too. Uh, I don't I don't know. I, I'd, I'd need to ask Jeremy Bentham about the specific loud party example. But anyway, you can see here that philosophy is at the centre of all the big questions that we face in society, both personal and communal. Um, For example, should guns be legal? And should I buy a gun? Um, And that doesn't relate to the party example. I'm not suggesting I'm going to shoot my neighbour, even though he does have a very annoying laugh. Um, But should drugs be legalised? And, you know, you might say, am I a bad person if I take drugs? Should we download films from BitTorrenting websites? Or should we buy them from the established distributors? Is it wrong if I watch a pirated film on the internet without paying for it? Does it matter which film it is? What if the film is a big-budget blockbuster like Transformers? Does that make a difference? What if I wouldn't have actually paid for the film anyway? Or should I feel guilty if I listen to episodes of Luke's English podcast and yet I never send him a donation for his hard work? And by the way, uh, the answers to all those questions in order um, are, it depends, 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 yes. Okay, Uh, so 
Anyway, all these questions are philosophical at their very heart. In most cases here, we're talking about ethics, which is just one branch of philosophy. There are lots of philosophical schools of thought. Not all of them are completely different. Some of them are quite similar. They came out of different contexts, different people, different periods of time, and different places. So let me go through some of them, and you can think about these things. Which one do you agree with? It's quite possible that you agree with more than just one of these things, because I think that most of us probably take a bit from here, a bit from there, and we have a complex and diverse way of making decisions and understanding the world. In fact, I'm quite sure that the, the, the general culture in the world is now a sort of combination of all these different schools of philosophical thought, um, as well as all sorts of other influences, such as traditional customs and beliefs. But there was a time when um, many of the thinking processes that we consider now to be just part of normal common sense didn't even exist. So there was a time when, you know, all of our common sense that we have now, what, you know, just didn't exist. A lot of the general assumptions that we have about questions of ethics, politics, and even language weren't always there. Basically, what I mean is that people used to be really, really stupid, like really mind-numbingly stupid. And slowly but surely, over decades, centuries, and millennia, a complex dialogue about the big questions has been going on, involving people from different countries um, and different cultures and stuff, writing things down and uh, coming to conclusions. Various conclusions have been made, and a certain amount of progress has been achieved in general thinking in the world, even though some people in the world still enjoy the music of Rick Astley. Uh, so despite uh, that, uh, we have made quite a lot of progress in terms of trying to answer the life's big questions. And uh, this has been a sort of, a, I guess, a culmination of lots of different uh, philosophizing by different people in different places over the years. Um, so are you okay? Are you following this? Yeah, you're doing all right? Good, good. By the way, all of this thing, the things I'm saying are written on the page for this episode on the website. So you can actually read along with me if you like. Right, let's carry on. So the different schools of thought that have appeared over the years are like different realizations. Okay, like, for example, uh, different rooms in this big palace of thinking that we now all have access to. And over the years, basically more and more rooms have been opened in this uh, big palace of, of thinking. You see, like maybe we started off in like fairly, a fairly small part of the building. And over the time, uh, different rooms have been opened and we've gained access to a lot more uh, forms of knowledge or ways of thinking about the world or ways of answering certain difficult questions. Okay, I told you this was complicated, but that's all right. So um, if you feel like it's hard to make a distinction between some of the schools of thought that I'm going to talk about now, that's okay. Some of them are quite similar. And in fact, over the years, they've, I think, combined to an extent so that today it can be hard to distinguish between some of them. They're not mutually exclusive um, um, philosophies. Also, there are other positions or ways of looking at the world that I might not mention here. And those things, you know, might emphasise politics or economics or psychology. Um, 
For example, if you believe that the defining force in your life is your place in the class system or the wealth system in, your, in society or, or how your life is dictated by those in power or by the decisions of your bosses or the police or something, then you might turn out to be a Marxist or something like that. Or if you think that your experiences as a child are the most influential factors in how your life has meaning, then you might be a Freudian, like um, like Sigmund Freud. Or simply, if you believe that our lives are entirely dictated by some sort of intelligent creator who has designed everything, including all existence, a moral code, and everything that happens, has happened or will happen, then you might be a religious person, like a Christian or a Muslim or something. Uh, or, perhaps, if you believe that your life is given meaning by how you interact with audio content uploaded onto an internet-based RSS feed, which you can then consume through headphones attached to your ears, which are attached to your head, then you might be a a lepsterian or something. I don't know what the philosophical position would be for those people who interpret the world through the lens of Luke's English podcast. Lepsterian? Lepster, I suppose. Uh, But anyway... It's more likely that your worldview is some sort of combination of all these different schools of thought. And of course, a lot of the time, we don't really know which school of thought we belong to because it's not football. You don't have to pick a team or anything. And it's much more complicated than football and probably less fun than football. But certainly in the UK, hardly anyone will say that they belong to a certain school of philosophical thought, you know. No one goes around saying, well, I'm, a, I'm an Epicurean, so I disagree with what you said because I'm an, I'm, I'm an Epicurean. No one does that. And no one says things like this. Hey, should we get pizza this evening? Well, I'd, I'd quite like to have noodles. So speaking as a Platonist, I think that we should have a debate about it and then choose our dinner based on the outcome of that argument. And perhaps you would like to start by outlining your predicates for why you believe pizza is the best option. So no, you know, we don't do that, of course. Um, yes, it's not like football. It's not like I support Manchester United or, you know, I'm a, I'm a utilitarian. We don't do that, of course. But anyway, here we go. Different schools of philosophy in alphabetical order in fact not chronological order so as you're listening to this you can just think about these questions question a do i understand what the hell this is all about (laughs) meaning do i understand what this particular school of philosophy is about and uh, b do i agree with this and is this a good way to look at the world and make decisions is this is this how i see the world okay right so we'll kick off with empiricism empiricism. And the basic ideas of empiricism were probably first established by Persian and Arabic philosophers in the 11th and 12th centuries, and then developed into more established uh, positions by British and Irish philosophers from the 17th century into the 20th century. So um, empiricists probably say that knowledge can only come from what you see and experience with your own eyes, which is basically like I'll believe it when I see it. Or it's only true if we can actually observe it. So the idea is that observation of something tells us what is true. Okay. Um, And this is often contrasted with rationalism, which basically says that you can use logic and reasoning to work something out without observing it. For example, that there are rules of logic that are always true, and that that these things define uh, what will happen. Mm -hmm. So empiricism basically says, 
I don't trust any other information than the information I've seen, and I can only know something after I've actually seen it, observed it, measured it. So basically, knowledge is something that comes after our experience, you see. So we have the experience, you observe the phenomenon, and that's how you understand it, by observing it. Rationalism, on the other hand, says that there are certain universal laws of logic which will ultimately give you the truth about something. So in this case, knowledge exists before us in the form of these laws of logic, and it's a matter of uncovering it using those laws. So empiricism is all about what comes after, meaning sort of, you know, the knowledge comes after observation, and rationalism is about what comes before, meaning the sort of the the value of logic as a way of dealing with uh, uh, problems. Okay, so uh, the what comes after means the knowledge you have of something. What comes after means that the knowledge you have of something comes after you've observed it. That's empiricism. And the what comes before means the principles of logic that exist before an event. These are universal laws of logic that everyone is born with the ability to use. And these laws of logic are then applied to something in order to help us understand it, you see. And these two things, empiricism and rationalism, are really important foundations of of, uh, the way we understand loads of things, like, for example, language. Like, um, uh, from a rational point of view, you might say that we are sort of born with an innate, uh, what they call universal grammar, which is like, we're all, all genetically or innately have the ability to learn language, and that this gets translated into whatever language it is that we learn. But we're, we're basically born with the sort of um, the predisposition to, to, to have language. That language, to an extent, is in us already. And it's just a question of uncovering it, um, you know, uh, through uh, the things we do. But the uh, empiricists might say that it's, language is all about stuff that... It's all the result of the things that we do in our lives. And that... Um, you know, it's all a question of the the practice and experience, the the the, the yeah, the learning that we do during our lives. Um, okay, so um, so another example might be about the the flat Earth argument. You know, this this argument that some people say that the Earth is flat. I mean, I, it's just an example. I don't believe the Earth is flat, and I think the whole argument is a bit silly. Um, but anyway, we'll use that as, as an example. For flat Earth, an empiricist would say, well, let's look at the Earth, let's measure it. If it looks round, then we'll know it's round. You could say that this is a bit limited because sometimes our senses can be wrong. For example, we might not be able to see things and our senses might even distort what we're seeing. For example, for flat Earth, we can't actually see the curvature of the Earth from our current position, even if we're in a plane, like in an aeroplane, even though the curvature is there because of our relatively close proximity to the Earth. So uh, you'd need to travel to the edge of the atmosphere to see the curvature, and not many people can do that. So a problem with being an empiricist is that you put too much faith in your senses, which can be misleading and can't cover all aspects of knowledge. For example, stuff that we can't actually see, like gravity. So I think there's also an argument that the act of observing something has an effect on it too. So anyway, observation is not 100% perfect, and empiricism has its flaws. That thing, that observation that doesn't really sort of fit very nicely with the idea of of language as a as a thing that uh, uh we learn rather than a thing that we are born with uh, the ability to acquire does it i mean look 
in this episode, right, the things I'm saying, not all of this is going to make sense. I mean, it doesn't all make sense to me. And it just, you know, you can spend years studying this stuff before you really get a sense of it. Um, so don't worry if it doesn't make it doesn't all make sense. You see, let's just keep moving. So I think in terms of empiricism and rationalism, I think the best approach would probably be to combine both systems. And, you know, for example, to prove that the Earth is round, you'd observe the Earth and measure it. But also you'd apply different mathematical laws or physical laws to understanding the shape of it, like, you know, working out uh um the distance between two places and the difference in the the way the sun shines on the you know that sort of stuff um all right how does that relate to language well we can align the rational rationalism side of things uh and this is what i've what i said just a moment ago with the idea of language nativism so rationalists say that we're all born with the ability to use logic and reason and that that's innate to us perhaps part of our genes and you might say that language nativists argue that we're born with an innate with an innate no with an innate that's quite difficult to say we're born with an innate ability with an innate ability innate means something we're born with we're born with an innate ability to learn languages we're not necessarily born with an innate ability to to, to say that sentence though we're born with an innate ability to learn. Honestly, try saying that sentence. You'll you'll find that the the sentence starts to run away from you. We're born with an. Whoa, 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 whoa! Come back. We're born with an. We're born with an innate ability. That's it to learn languages. That language learning is an is an. Is it too much to ask, you think, in this episode for me to be able to explain all this philosophy and actually be able to talk at the same time? I've said before on this podcast that it's difficult to multitask, and here I'm trying to do that. And not only am I trying to understand and explain all the complex philosophy, I'm also trying to speak at the same time. Anyway, so the idea is that there with rationalism that language learning is in our genes. I mean, in our genetics, not in, our, not in the trousers. Haha. <laughs> Um, that that all of us learn languages uh, in the same way, regardless of the language, and that that is instinctual. That's the idea of universal grammar. Okay, and then language empiricists, on the other hand, believe that language is something that only happens after we are born. That this is something that we learn through experience, rather than something that's kind of built into us genetically. All right. I mean, personally, I think it's got to be a combination of the two, hasn't it? That we're probably born with an innate with an innate. Oh, we're born with um, we're born with ability. We I just forget the word innate. With an innate, we're born with the ability to um, learn language, but that doesn't happen unless we actually, you know, have the right experiences and do certain things in order to make the language happen. So it's probably a combination of the two. Okay, fine. Let's move on to the next one, and that is called Epicureanism epicureanism so this is an ancient school of thought created by a guy called epicurus from athens in ancient greece um and this was around 300 years before the birth of jesus christ so epicurus was knocking around at about 300 300 bc 307 bc i think i don't think he he lived just for one year 307 bc i think this is probably there's some record from 307 BC of Epicurus and, you know, these ideas. 
Anyway, so uh, around 307 BC, this was when people were just trying to work out how to live properly, coming up with approaches to the best way to live your life. These days, of course, we are inundated by different methods and approaches to how to live your life. Think of all the lifestyle magazines and articles about dieting and making the right life choices and career moves. But once upon a time, people hadn't really worked all of that stuff out. And the philosophers in ancient Greece really paved the way for this sort of thing. It seems that they spent an awful lot of time just sitting around trying to work out what human beings should really be doing with their lives beyond just surviving like all the other species on Earth. Um, Some of them, it seems, came to the conclusion that what human beings should really be doing is sitting around trying to work out what human beings should really be doing. Um, Anyway, Epicurus believed that pleasure and pain are the only things that have intrinsic value to, to beings. Beings meaning people or animals even. Pleasure and pain are the only, the, the only two things. And that the goal of life was to maximise pleasure and minimise pain for both yourself and other people. So he taught that people thus needed four virtues in their lives. So prudence, which is basically caution or the act of being careful. Justice friendliness and fortitude fortitude is basically courage and the ability to withstand pain and difficulty so the four virtues prudence justice friendliness and fortitude Uh, and epicurus emphasized that the pleasure from an action must be weighed against the negative side effects Um, uh, a concept that could be called the pleasure calculation so if you're trying to work out what to do you need to balance or weigh up the negative side effects and the uh, positive side effects of doing that thing. For example, I don't know, if going round to your neighbour's house to tell them to shut up, uh, the positive effect of that could be the satisfaction of, of, of telling them off. But then the negative side effects might be, well, you could get punched in the face or you might lose... Um, you know, uh, you know, it might be awkward in the future when you meet those neighbours in the in the stairway or something, and you know they might not um, they might not you know deliver mail to your door if if they receive you know that sort of thing. Another example could be uh, you you could save up a thousand pounds, okay, right? You could save up a thousand pounds, buy twenty kilograms of chocolate, and eat it all at the same time. Okay, and, and all right, so that obviously would be quite positive because we like ch- chocolate's delicious. But in this case, though, you need to weigh up the pleasure of eating the chocolate against the inevitable stomach ache and the weight that you'll gain from eating a third of your body weight in chocolate. And uh, Epicurus had a second part of the pleasure calculation that he said to consider. Okay, uh, for example, and that's this is it worth the monetary benefit of 1000 pounds of chocolate or buying a new bike a bit later for 1100 pounds what, what a difficult question i don't know if anyone's actually ever had to deal with that question have you if you had a thousand pounds you're like right well i've, I've saved up a thousand pounds or it's payday what am i going to do with a thousand pounds well uh, as far as I can see it, there are two options: either I buy a third of my body weight in chocolate and eat it all in one day, or I buy to, or, or I buy a bicycle. I think I think we would all buy the bicycle. I think so. But anyway, m- maybe in the year you know four hundred BC, l- there were loads of people constantly buying 
massive loads of chocolate uh, and getting fat. And Ep- it took Epicurus to come along and go, well, maybe it would be a better idea to think about that more carefully and consider buying a bicycle. And then people were like, but bicycles haven't been invented yet. And they'd say, well, um, you know, w- whatever the equivalent of a bicycle is. Just buy buy a nice pair of running shoes. Well, running shoes haven't really been in. Sandals. Just get some nice sandals. Um, so the, the greater pleasure, even if it causes a slight negative effect at the moment, is the greater good. So buying the bike is probably the better idea because even though it's like it can be difficult to learn how to ride the bike, it costs you more money. Um, ultimately, it's better because it will make you f- better f- physically. It's better for you. Uh, and it's you know you'll probably live a longer and healthier life if you buy the bicycle, which we already knew. Um, Epicurus also taught that sensual pleasures weren't all that there was to the world. So it, life isn't just about pleasing yourself in a sensual way, like sexually or by eating nice food and doing nice things. It's that's not what it's all about. Epicurus noted that appreciation of art and friendship also count as pleasure. So it's not bodily, not just bodily pleasures, but other slightly higher types of pleasure like art and friendship. More, moreover, Epicurus taught that the enjoyment of life also required old Greek ideals of self-control, temperance and serenity. And desires need to be curbed and serenity will help us to endure the pain that we may face. So, the, you know, it's basically sort of self-control, the value of having some self-control. Epicurus also preached altruism over self-interest, the idea that we should help other people rather than just helping ourselves. And he said that um, friendship dances around the world, calling all people to a life of happiness. I think he probably didn't say it in English. Uh, But anyway, that's the translation. He taught that the best life for the individual is one that is lived with other people for for their benefit in addition to the individual's own benefit. Okay, Um, that particular paragraph was taken from Rational Wiki, the website. So, no, I've got no idea what what he would say about language. Perhaps he would say that when choosing to learn another language, we should measure the benefits of learning that language against the pain that we may experience uh, while doing it. You know, I'm pretty sure that we can all agree that while learning English um, can be painful or frustrating or confusing and even indeed embarrassing the you know if you make mistakes or you you look a bit like an idiot when you don't say something properly that can be difficult but the benefit of learning this language clearly outweighs those negative things so on balance epicurus would probably say go ahead and learn english and make some friends with people while you're doing it and in fact be a teacher you know go and help people um, learn languages if you've learned english you know help other people learn english and you know this is the the best way to go forwards okay not a bad set of ideas there i think next one and this is number three i think in my list is existentialism Ooh, existentialism so this is a philosophy that emphasizes individual existence freedom and choice And it's the view that humans define their own meaning in life and try to make rational decisions despite existing in an irrational universe. It focuses on the question of human existence and the feeling that there is no purpose or explanation at the core of existence. That basically human existence is like just sort of random and irrational and almost meaningless. Why are we here? Well, there's no reason why we're here. We just are here. 
And so we've got to just make the most of it and make the best of it that we can. That there are there is no grand purpose or or or, or sort of intelligent design going on. We just live in a random, irrational, crazy universe. And so all of us individually have to just um, express our freedom and our personal choices and work it out for ourselves. Um, and existentialism basically says that there is no God and that there is no other transcendent force. The only way to counter this nothingness, this randomness, this void uh, in the universe is by embracing existence itself. So we just have to live our lives to the fullest and experience li- uh, uh, things uh, on our own terms and work it out for ourselves. So thus, existentialism believes that individuals are entirely free and must take personal responsibility for themselves. Although with this responsibility comes angst, uh, which is a sort of a sense of uh, uh, awkwardness and concern, worry, um, uh, a profound anguish or dread. Because, you know, we're constantly, you know, we don't have the comfort, existentialists don't have the comfort of believing that there is, you know, there is a God or someone out looking after you out there up in the sky or in the heavens or something that you know we live in this kind of uh, chaotic universe and so that uh, there will be there is fear involved in that uh, and a lot of responsibility you know you have a lot of risk personal responsibility so if things are going wrong it's your fault but uh, existentialism emphasizes action freedom and decision as fundamental and holds that the only way to rise above the essentially absurd and ridiculous condition of humanity which is char- characterized by suffering in life and then in- inevitable death the only way to uh, rise above this is by exercising our personal freedom and choice which is a complete rejection of determinism determinism is the idea that our lives have already been determined that we don't really have free will, that it's all part of some big grand plan, which is often a, a sort of religious idea. Okay, all right. Often existentialism is a movement, uh, as a movement, is used to describe those people who refuse to belong to any school of thought, repudiating the adequacy of any body of beliefs or systems, claiming them to be superficial, academic and remote from life. Although it has much in common with nihilism, Existentialism is more a reaction against traditional philosophies such as rationalism, empiricism and positivism that seek to discover an ultimate order and universal meaning in metaphysical principles or in the structure of the unobserved uh, the structure of the observed world. So basically existentialists say stop trying to make sense of it it doesn't make any sense. So there's no system, you know, you, you know, uh, rationalism, empiricism, they, they, they fail because the universe is completely random and chaotic. So we've got to just try and make the best of it. Um, and existentialists would say that uh, people actually make decisions based on what has meaning to them rather than what is rational. Okay. Now, um, existentialism originated with sort of 19th century philosophers, people like Nietzsche, um, and also French existentialists, people like Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus and Simone de Beauvoir. They wrote scholarly and fictional works that popularised existential themes such as dread, boredom, alienation, the absurd, freedom, commitment and nothingness. So when I think of existentialists, I think of like people in black turtleneck sweaters smoking cigarettes and uh, and uh, they're quite cool 
existentialists, you know? They're quite cool. I, it, it also makes me think of, like, the beat poets of the 1950s and 60s. You know, those, uh, those guys in America, who you know, people like Jack Kerouac, who wrote On the Road. And it also makes me think of like the 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 german students that the beatles uh met when they were in hamburg these sort of really cool art students in in germany who were basically existentialists and they they were moody and sort of they wore black all the time and they were intellectual and uh so existentialists are kind of cool but they're a bit dark they're a bit gothic or something they're like emo goths um something like that so how does existentialism relate to language? Well, I've got no idea, I have to say. I've got no idea, except maybe that, you know, maybe they would say that language itself is somehow chaotic or or, or something that there's, you know, you shouldn't really adopt a, a certain system to understanding language and that you should just work it out for yourself. Like, whatever works for you is the best way to do it. So, you know, create your own rules for language and, you know, if it works for you, that's all right. So when you're when you're learning English, uh, just do it your own way, and you know don't worry about following a, a certain system or certain uh, uh, learning uh, method. Just come up with your own method, and if it works for you, that's great. Okay, let's move on to hedonism. Hedonism is a, is quite a fun one. I'm reading this from uh, a website called philosophybasics.com, and hedonism is a school of philosophy from the Socratic and Hellenistic periods of ancient Greece. And hedonism holds that pleasure is the most important pursuit of mankind and that we should always act so as to maximise our own pleasure. So if you like eating cake and stuff like that, yes, if you like cake and just sort of sitting in a very comfortable sofa and... Uh, just um, eating cake and drinking wine and and maybe having sex or something, then hedonism might be for you. The earliest manifestations of hedonism, um, or the, the earliest manifestation of hedonism, was Cyrenae... Uh, how do I pronounce that? How do I pronounce that word? I've never seen that word in my life. Cyrenae... Okay, hold on a second. The earliest manifestation of hedonism was Cyrenicism, which was popular in the 4th and 3rd centuries BC. Uh, blah bloody blah Basically, the Cyreniacs emphasised bodily gratification as more intense and preferable to mental pleasures and denied that we should defer immediate gratification for the sake of long-term gain two major points of departure from the similar but more modest school of Epicureanism. So essentially the hedonists say, um, with the question of the the £1,000, how should we spend it? The hedonists would say, let's just buy the chocolate. Mm, Yum, yum, yum. Let's buy chocolate and smear it all over our faces and let's have a nice chocolate bath and we'll eat all of it together and then we'll have sex. I think that's kind of their approach, which is that bodily gratifications are more important than the higher-minded mental gratifications of art and friendship and things like that. Um, And they also prioritised immediate gratification rather than sort of um, long-term gratification. So basically, at any given moment, it's a good moment to just be, um, I don't know, 
indulging in various forms of bodily gratification, which I suppose means eating delicious food and lying in a comfortable position or drinking alcohol, maybe even taking drugs and indulging in various uh, sexual practices. Um, okay, that's, that's, the, that's the hedonists for you. Um, and uh, contemporary hedonists are represented by an organisation known as Hedonist International, uh, and they strive first and foremost for pleasure, as did their predecessors, but with an additional emphasis on personal freedom and equality. Hedonist International, so this is like the organisation responsible for, um, uh, yeah, the, the contemporary hedonists. Um, now, I wonder what Hedonist International are all about. Um, I'm just having a look uh, on the internet. I'm just Googling Hedonist International. Hedonist-international.org. Well, their website is down. The website is down. So I wonder what that means. Maybe they, maybe they're they're too busy drinking brandy and having sex or something. I don't know. And they haven't had a chance to fix their website. Um, I don't know. Anyway, uh, that's hedonists. Okay, bodily pleasure and all that sort of thing. Fine, sounds fine, I suppose. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to stop you if that's what you're into. I don't think it's necessarily the exactly the right way to live your life because ultimately, if you do just, you know, whenever you get your your pay from your job, if you have one, um, you're just going to spend it immediately on cake and booze and and women. You know, I mean, that lifestyle you, you can't carry on like that for long, can you? Ultimately. It's going to affect your health, surely. Um, you've got to be a bit more self-controlled than that, I would say. It's probably fun for a while, but uh, it can't last for, t- for too long, can it? So what about language? Would a hedonist make a good language learner? Well, I sort of imagine that a hedonist might be a bit lazy, especially if learning a language from scratch doesn't involve much bodily pleasure. But perhaps hedonists might learn a language if it meant gaining access to more forms of gratification. Uh, for example, they might learn a language in order to seduce people, to uh, to get attractive foreign people into bed. That might involve having to learn the language. Or they might learn the language in order to get access to alcohol or drugs or something, or other forms of bodily pleasure. I expect a hedonist's vocabulary would be rather limited to dirty words useful phrases for drug deals, and pillow talk. So anyway, I don't know. Do I have any hedonists out there? You, I mean, I don't know if you would proudly proclaim yourself to be a hedonist. Hello, my name's uh, Steve, and uh, I'm a hedonist. Um, you know, do you have any cake? I don't know. Um, so anyway, if I've got any hedonists listening to this, let me know. Um, does being a hedonist help you learn language? Maybe it does. Maybe being under the the influence of alcohol or drugs or just to, to be in extreme comfort at all times, maybe that is a very effective way of learning a language because you it reduces the, the, the affective filter, doesn't it? If you're feeling incredibly relaxed uh, and indulging in bodily pleasure at all times, that certainly would make you comfortable. We all know that being comfortable is an important part of the language learning process. So God knows, uh, you know, hedonism might be a really effective uh, way for learning a language. But I also wouldn't be surprised that if you did, um, you know, drink lots of booze while learning your language, that you might forget everything that you'd learned. I don't know, really. I don't know. Um, If any of you out there have experience of using 
uh, hedonism as a language learning method, then uh, let me know in the comments section. The next item on the list is humanism. And I'm, I'm looking here again at uh, philosophybasics.com and what they have to say about humanism. So apparently humanism is a renaissance movement in philosophy towards a more human-centred and less religion-centred approach. It has an ultimate faith in humankind and believes that human beings possess the power or potentiality of solving their own problems through reliance primarily upon reason and scientific method applied with courage and vision. Rather than being a specific philosophical doctrine or school on its own, uh, humanism is a more general life stance or attitude that upholds human reason, ethics and justice. It's a component of a variety of more specific philosophical systems and is incorporated into some religious schools of thought. Interesting. It's, um, it's an optimistic attitude to life whose ultimate goal is human flourishing, like just general uh, when humans are doing really well, flourishing, um, doing good and living well in the here and now and leaving the world a better place for those who come after. In ethics, it affirms the dignity and worth of all people and their ability to determine right and wrong purely by appeal to universal human qualities, especially rationality, and it considers faith to be an unacceptable basis for action. It endorses a moral universalism based on the commonality of the human condition and encourages secularism and freedom from religious rule and teachings. So I guess like uh, humanists... Dis- basically believe that like supernatural beliefs in um in god uh, are not really a, a an appropriate basis for uh, living your life so they they reject um religious uh, thought or religious dogma and instead they push the idea that humans um have certain universal qualities which include things like you know the fact that we have to live together and that that we um it's natural for for humans to cooperate and that uh, if we communicate with each other and that we try to work together that this is the best way to achieving the best form of life for everybody and that we are born with an innate sense of right and wrong and that it's kind of common sense that um, it's actually beneficial for our survival as a species that we uh, live in a moral uh, in a moral way and that this is something that's obvious to us because it, it's just it's just um, logical that we are rational people and we can use our our logic to work out what's wrong and right. And that if you go around murdering everyone all the time, that that ultimately is not going to lead to a um, a beneficial society, and that you don't need um, a set of religious teachings to tell you that 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 just is a sort of obvious thing for all humans who 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 will actually think about the world okay so it's a sort of optimistic um position that you know humans by their very nature uh, will work together and that we want peace and things like that in terms of language um learning i'm sure that humanists put a high value on language as a means of connecting with other people in the world and that humanists might have a democratic and prescriptive approach to language too like the idea that you know for example different uh, forms of english all have um, equal status in the world 
you know you know and they probably believe in the idea of global english that it doesn't matter if you know you have slightly different accents or if you have traces of your your accent uh in your your english that that's fine because everyone's version of english is equally valid and that the main thing is that we you know we understand each other and we try to understand each other and um and that english as a global language is a uh, an important thing for achieving peace and, and cooperation on earth yeah i quite like the idea of hedonism uh, hedonism mm. no i mean humanism i, I don't mind it maybe a little bit of hedonism as well sometimes not all the time because i mean how would you carry on but a little bit of hedonism but humanism i think is quite a a, a, a positive and optimistic approach i think um next one is platonism and this is basically based on the things that plato said it's a bit confusing i have to say but to boil it down let's just say that Plato basically invented the first university, first of all. That was a place called the Academy, which was where he delivered lectures to his students and he engaged in debates. And this basically was the foundation of certain academic principles and methods. Uh, For example, those academic for and against essays that you might have to write at university or for an IELTS writing part two. That all started with Plato and his academy. And Plato believed highly in the value of debate, argument and discourse as a way of reaching certain eternal higher truths. He thought that ideas were more important than matter, than physical stuff, and that the pursuit of knowledge or the process of learning is a question of uncovering universal truths that already exist in our immortal souls. This sounds like rationalism, doesn't it? From a language point of view, Plato believed that ultimate knowledge already exists inside us, and it's just a matter of uncovering it. Now, um, the the famous linguist uh, Noam Chomsky has applied this idea to his understanding of linguistics, which is how languages work, specifically in the idea that there is a universal grammar that we're all born with. I was talking about this earlier from the idea of the language nativists. And basically, the idea is something like this. How do native English speakers know exactly how to use grammatical forms, like present perfect tense, correctly, without having formally studied or, or studied it or having been taught it? The idea is that, that we're native speakers are... You know, that people are born with the um, ability to learn the rules of grammar without actually having to study the rules of grammar. And in fact, this is how people learn their native languages. They don't actually have to learn how, uh, you know, they don't need to learn the rules. It The language just eventually, the, the rules just sort of arrive to us uh, because we're born with the ability to use grammar already inside us i'm not i'm not doing a very good job of explaining this here's an example my brother james knows when a sentence is right or wrong in english now he obviously is a native english speaker but he's never studied grammar in the way that i have studied it as an english teacher or the way that you probably have studied it as an english learner you've probably been through some grammar study right i mean you've probably done things on present perfect tense for example so my brother's never studied present perfect tense. He didn't even know what present perfect tense was. Um, but he, he knows when a sentence is right or wrong. For example, he knows when present perfect is being used correctly or not, although he's never actually uh, been taught uh, the formal rules of English grammar. So how did he learn it? The idea is that James, like all of us, was born with an innate understanding of grammar inside him. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Again, I'm still not doing a very good job of explaining that because it doesn't sound very satisfying when I explain it. Like, really, we're all just born with grammar inside us. And you might be thinking, well, that's not how I feel because uh, when I had to to study present perfect, it didn't, didn't feel very natural to me. Anyway, there is such a thing as Plato's problem. This is from fluentu.com. Plato's problem. So the writings of Plato stretch all the way back to the beginnings of Western philosophical thought. But Plato was already posing problems critical to modern linguistic discourse, which is basically like the the, the ways that we understand language and the conversations that we have about uh, linguistics. In the nature versus nurture debate, remember nature being the things we're born with and nurture being the, the things we learn in our lives, Plato tended to side with nature, believing that knowledge was innate. Okay, it was an, 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 an innate ability. Uh, this was his answer to what has become known as Plato's problem, or as Bertrand Russell summarises it, how come uh, human beings whose contact with the world is brief and personal and limited are nevertheless able to know as much as they do know? Being born with this knowledge from the get-go would naturally solve this little quandary, and consequently he viewed language as innate. Okay. All right. Now, personally, I can't completely agree with this. What about people who are rubbish at grammar because they've had no exposure to it? Or what about, for example, uh, a French person who um, is exposed to English grammar and it confuses him time and time again because it it's the 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 grammar of french verb forms is just different to the grammar of english verb forms and so he just can't really get it and it doesn't strike him as being logical in any sense because it's in some cases totally different to uh, uh english grammar or french grammar i'm not i'm not explaining the plato problem or platonism very well here so let's just skip forwards to skepticism Skepticism, which is spelt S-K-E-P-T-I-C-I-S-M in the United States, or S-C-E-P-T-I-C-I-S-M in the UK. And this is from philosophybasics.com. At its simplest, skepticism holds that one should refrain from making truth claims and avoid the postulation of final truths. Basically, skeptics will say, don't jump to conclusions. And you can never really be totally sure that something is completely true. That, like, hold on, you know, don't jump to the conclusion. Don't jump to conclusions. We should doubt everything. We should question everything. So this is not necessarily quite the same thing as claiming that truth is impossible, which would itself be a truth claim. But it's often also used to cover the position that there is no such thing as certainty in human knowledge. Okay, so you can never be completely certain. For language learning, you could say that a sceptic would avoid jumping to conclusions about the language being learned. Okay, for example, when you come across bits of language, you kind of constantly think, hmm, really? You're constantly questioning it and you're, you're avoiding that thing, which is to assume that this is a general rule that always applies to language. You see? For example, when you think that you've learned a rule about the language, avoid saying, well, this is always true. See, the sceptic would avoid saying that, and the sceptic would be like, "Mm, there must be an exception to this. For example, the idea that quantifiers in grammar 
quantifiers, which are words like some or any. The idea that those words are always used in a certain way. For example, you might learn from an intermediate book that some is always used in affirmative sentences, like, for example, there is some milk in the fridge, and that any is only used in questions or negatives. Have you ever read that? Uh, you'd say, like, there is some milk in the fridge, but if it's a question form, you'd say, is there any milk in the fridge? Or in a negative form, there isn't any milk in the fridge, you see? So that's what you might have learnt in a book. But watch out, because this so-called rule is often broken. In fact, you might say, would you like some milk? Or uh, is, um, is, there some, is there some milk in the fridge? Okay, I mean, people do say those things. So we do sometimes put some in questions or in negatives, despite what this so-called rule says. So, you know, be careful, be sceptical about rules. And probably the, the best idea would be to, if you've come across a rule, to actually test it by, you know, listening to the language or seeing the language being used on paper and see if that rule gets broken. So basically, a language learning sceptic might avoid thinking, well, this is always true. Or this is never correct. You know, you just hold back and don't jump to conclusions. That's the sceptic's um, approach. Uh, the next thing, and I think this is the last thing, the last one, this is stoicism. Stoicism is something that's becoming more and more popular these days. You know, lots of people, in fact, for stoicism, this is one of those ones that people actually do say that they, they're, a, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting really interested in stoicism, actually. I think it's really an interesting way of, of like living your life, you know, and I've just been reading all these like stoic, these guides to stoicism. You might find self-help books uh, in bookshops that are based on stoicism. So stoicism was founded by founded in Athens by Zeno of Citium in the early 3rd century BC, but was famously practised by the likes of Epictetus, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. The philosophy asserts that virtue, for example wisdom, is happiness, and judgment should be based on behaviour rather than words, that, w- that we don't control and cannot rely on external events, only ourselves and our responses. So the idea is it's about sort of self-control and um, exercising judgment, and, and that this is, an, this is the, the best way to do things, to be self-controlled and to use careful judgment in things that we do, rather than basing our, our whole worldview on external things. Stoicism has just a few central teachings. It sets out to remind us of how unpredictable the world can be, how brief our moment of life is, how to be st- steadfast and strong and in control of yourself, and finally, that the source of our dissatisfaction in life lies in our impulsive dependency on our reflexive senses rather than logic. It seems to me that Stoicism is directly opposite to hedonism. Stoicism doesn't concern itself with complicated theories about the world. Hmm, so I don't think hedonism is a particularly complicated theory. Anyway, Stoicism doesn't concern itself with complicated theories about the world, but with helping us overcome destructive emotions and to act on what can be acted upon. It's built for action, not endless debate. So it's a sort of a very um, pragmatic approach to life and about um, using self-control as a way of dealing with our problems and about personal responsibility. I found an article 
about Stoicism on the website um, Fluent in Three Months, which is um, the website of uh, the Irish polyglot Benny Lewis. Benny Lewis is quite famous in the language learning community. He's from Ireland. He's one of these guys who who is able to learn lots of different languages and he's published lots of things, guidebooks on how to learn languages and things. He seems like a really interesting guy. Um, and his website is called Fluent in Three Months. And it's Basically, the article does exactly what I'm doing in this episode, which is to apply certain f- principles of philosophy to language learning. This, the one that I found on fluentinthreemonths.com was written by Jeremy Ginsberg, who describes himself as a writer, entrepreneur, it's like a combination between an entrepreneur and a performer, entrepreneur, and a language learner. And you'll find it on fluentinthreemonths.com forward slash stoic. Uh, dash philosophy um let's have a little look at that um i mean there's there's a full article about um using stoicism in language learning maybe we can flick through it first thing is these are stoic tools according to um this article written by uh jeremy ginsburg ask yourself what's the worst that could happen so for this practice ask yourself what is the worst that can happen this is positive practice because it prepares you for the worst if it actually does happen once you're done thinking about this you can go back to reality and you're more appreciative for what you still have um uh, how to apply this to language learning. In language learning, you can do the same thing by asking yourself, well, what's the worst that can happen? When you talk to someone, expect no one to understand you. If signing up for 10 lessons scares you, think about the worst possible scenario. Maybe you, you, you won't like your teacher and you'll end up learning nothing. Or picture this scenario. You forget all of your French and you freeze up when you meet someone from Montreal. After a few awkward silences, you switch to English. Now, that's not that bad. You can prepare for the worst while hoping for the best. That way, if you try to practice your target language and people don't understand you, you won't be surprised because you will already have thought about that happening as a possibility. And if they do understand you, you'll be surprised and even happier. So it's basically sort of like lower your expectations when you're learning a language. If your expectations are far too high, then you're likely to be disappointed. So um, it's not necessarily negative to consider the worst possible outcome. Instead, it's a question of preparing yourself for challenges, let's say, when you're learning a language. Next thing he recommends is that you should choose to be uncomfortable. So um, many of the early Stoics took the idea of negative visualization even further and put themselves in difficult real-life situations. So instead of picturing a scene in which they lost all their money, they'd actually spend a few days living in poverty to keep themselves humble and to remind themselves to live a simple life. So how to apply this to language learning? You should cut out your native language completely. This can be as intense as you would like it to be. You can start with putting your phone in your target language or maybe your computer. You can put that into, let's say, English. You could also spend one evening without speaking your native language and only speak in your target language. Set yourself up for failure by trying to talk to someone in a language that you don't know. You might feel stupid and you might get a bit embarrassed, but you'll see that it won't be that bad. Put yourself in an uncomfortable situation where you're forced to use your target language. So basically, that's the idea of get out of your comfort zone. Force yourself to get out of your comfort zone in English and you'll find that you might uh, learn more effectively uh, by doing it. If you stay in your comfort zone all the time and you never challenge yourself, then you won't learn properly. Okay. Um, Third thing would be laugh at yourself. Don't take yourself too seriously. Um, 
And、um, fourth thing, live below your means. How to apply this to language learning? Instead of con- constantly spoiling yourself with a new language learning book or spending lots of money on language learning materials, try to make the best of what you already have once in a while. Use the same small book for a week, or actually dig into that online course that you bought a few months ago. Take one set of flashcards and spend six months memorising them. So basically, the the idea is、uh, live more modestly and make the most of the things that you already have, rather than just sort of、um, splashing out on more and more things in your language learning journey.、Um, you know, an idea there would be with, with episodes of Luke's English podcast. You could really dig in. I mean, it's a free resource, so you could really make the most of the podcast. Maybe by doing some transcribing. You know, join the trans. Transcription project might be a good way to、um, really take advantage of free resources for learning English. You know, it might require a bit of、um, creativity on your part in terms of how you can use a free resource to help you learn the language. But、um, you know, there it is. All right,、uh, live in the moment. In language learning, your past lessons don't really matter. How long have you been studying? That's not relevant. How many tutors have you had? No one cares. All that matters is your language ability right now and the progress that you're making now, and that's all you should be focused on. Live in the moment. That's quite good advice because sometimes you know it's easy to think to yourself, "Oh, I've been learning English for ten years. My level should be so much better than it is now." Don't think like that because that's just going to put you in a negative frame of mind. Instead, just live in the here and now. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. Just think about applying yourself to it right now, and don't be dragged down by negative thoughts about how long you've already spent doing it. That stuff doesn't matter. I mean, you know, the article goes on. There's some really interesting stuff there about how to apply a kind of general、uh, stoic point of view to learning English. You can find it fluentinthreemonths.com. Slash Stoic dash philosophy, or you find you'll find the link on the page for this episode on my website. So there you go, folks. Eight different schools of philosophical thought applied roughly to the idea of language learning. We had empiricism, Epicureanism, existentialism, hedonism, humanism, Platonism, skepticism, and Stoicism. Lots of isms. There are many more types of philosophy than that, of course, but that was just a series of eight based on this online survey that Amber, Paul, and I took recently. Remember that I said at the beginning that the whole reason I'm doing this is because I did record Amber, Paul, and me having a chat about philosophy while going through that quiz, and I thought it would be a good idea to sort of, I don't know, sort of、um, prepare you a little bit for that one. If you're feeling a bit confused, don't worry. I totally understand. Honestly, I'm a bit confused too about some of these things. That's totally normal. This stuff, all this philosophy, it's not supposed to be easy. Also, some of you might there out there might be thinking, but this is all obvious. Well, yeah, to an extent, it is obvious. But there was a time when it wasn't. So you know. So anyway, this stuff isn't supposed to be easy. That's why people have been thinking about it and going on about it for thousands of years now. Really, philosophy is all about wisdom and trying to understand things better.、Uh, it's about making the right decisions and choosing the correct way of life. I wonder what school of philosophy you associate with most.、Um, you could write your ideas in the comments section on the website and see what other people are writing too. Also, if you'd just like to listen to Amber, Paul, and me finding out which school of philosophy we belong to. Just wait until the next episode to hear our discussion. But for now, for this episode, that's it. Thank you so much for listening and being a generally wonderful person. If you are 
I don't know, if you're a hedonist, you can go back to, um, you can go back to your trousers now, um, and, uh, carry on. Yeah. Um, just make sure you wash your hands afterwards. Uh, if you're not a hedonist, if you're a stoic, then just carry on being a stoic. That's great. Really good. I'm very happy for all of you, regardless of whatever philosophical school of thought you might be, uh, belong to. Um, good. Three things. Don't forget to download the Luke's English Podcast app, which is available from the App Store, the uh, uh, Android, Google Play Store, or the iOS App Store, the Windows. Uh, it's also for Windows phones as well. Check it out. Uh, that's where you'll find all of the episodes in the whole archive available in your smartphone, right at your fingertips. Remember, don't forget to wash your hands, hedonists. Um, and um, also some bonus episodes and things too and watch out for some more bonus stuff coming uh, soon probably Um, and join the mailing list on the website that's where you can get uh, an email sent straight to your inbox whenever I upload something and sometimes it's the quickest way to be the first person to listen to uh, an episode of the podcast when it's uploaded third thing is uh, what? Just have a nice day. Have a nice day or night or morning or evening or or, or dinner or breakfast or lunch or coffee or tea or burger or uh, cake and glass of fine wine. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode. I've been Luke Thompson and I will speak to you again on the podcast soon. But for now, goodbye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.